goes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Code pink for freedom, code pink for peace. That was Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. My name is Leonardo Flores of Code Pink's Latin America Campaigns. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, and many other community radio stations like Western Mass Community Broadcasting, WMCB dash lp 107.9 fm we're also on spotify and apple podcasts check out our website at www.codepink.org radio where you will find all of our episodes from episode one to our most recent we've got a great one for you today in the first half hour my colleague terry Matson and i will interview carlos ron venezuela's vice minister for north american affairs about how the conflict in ukraine has led to developments in u.s venezuela relations after the break Terry will speak with Colombian analyst Victor de Corcurrea Lugo about elections in Colombia, where the left candidate Gustavo Petro made history in the primaries. But first, some news and updates about Coat Pink campaigns. Let's start with some happy news. This one really does warm my heart. Jamaica has just announced that they will begin the process of removing the Queen as, of he as head of state. The announcement came as the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, William and Kate, are actually in the country. The two have been going, undergoing an eight-day tour of the Caribbean, which by all accounts has been disastrous. People from throughout the Caribbean have been calling for the UK to apologize for slavery and demanding reparations. In Belize, the so-called royals had to change their schedule because the local community was protesting their charity for snatching up land in the area. In 2021, Barbados became a republic and removed the queen as head of state. In addition to Jamaica, Antigua and Barbuda, the Bahamas, Grenada, St. Kitts and Nevis, St. Lucia, and St. Vincent and the Grenadines are all facing calls to dump the queen. Last week, Ukrainian President Zelensky addressed Congress and asked NATO for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. A no-fly zone would mean U.S. and NATO planes and missiles shooting down Russian planes over Ukraine, as well as Russian anti-aircraft systems in Russia. That would bring NATO and Russia into war, a war between the two countries with the most nuclear weapons, a third world war. The latest polls show that people of the United States are beginning to, beginning to understand that a no-fly zone equals World War III. According to Quinnipiac, 54% of, of people in the U.S. approve of NATO's decision to reject a no-fly zone. Just a few weeks ago, over 50% were calling for the opposite, so that's important progress. To learn more about why we need to continue saying no to a no-fly zone, as well as why we should push for negotiations and diplomacy rather than sending weapons and escalation, visit www.codepink.org Ukraine. 
This conflict is a lot more complicated than what you see on mainstream media. Zelensky has just banned 11 opposition parties. People perceived as ethnic Russian or Romani are being humiliated and beaten on the streets. Men and transgender women are being pressed into service, not allowed to leave the country. Civilian areas are being bombed. There is ugliness on all sides, and it's up to us to ignore the propaganda and continue pushing for peace. While people in Ukraine are suffering the most, sanctions imposed on Russia are not only harming the civilian population, they're harming the world. Right here at home, we've seen gas prices shoot up, and we can expect food to get even more expensive soon. Sanctions lead to hyperinflation and shortages, and now we're seeing those effects go global. In Kenya, the price of bread is up 40%. In Indonesia, they've put price controls on cooking oil. And in Turkey, people are panic buying sunflower oil. All of these are products that Russia and Ukraine export to the world. With that, I'll turn it over to my Code Pink colleague, Terry Matson, who will discuss how the conflict in Ukraine is affecting U.S.-Venezuela relations with Carlos Ron, Venezuela's Vice Minister for North American Affairs. Today's episode is titled, Is the Crisis in Ukraine Forcing a New U.S. Approach Towards Venezuela? My co-host today is Code Pink Latin America Policy Specialist, Leonardo Flores. Our story was inspired by news from Saturday, March 5 when a group of senior U.S. officials flew to Venezuela for a meeting with President Nicolas Maduro's government to discuss the possibility of easing sanctions on Venezuela oil exports as the Biden administration weighed a ban on imports of Russian gas and oil. The trip was the highest level U.S. visit to Venezuela in years and came as the United States was seeking to isolate Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. Venezuela, Russia's most important ally in South America was a significant supplier of crude to the United States before exports were crippled by sanctions imposed by Washington. Joining today's conversation is our friend, Carlos Ron. Carlos is Venezuelan Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs for North America. And we're so honored to have you back with us, Carlos. Welcome. Thank you, Terry. Leo, it's a pleasure to, to be with you guys uh, uh, and to be able to talk a, a bit more about uh, these recent events. Uh, as always, you know that for us, our relationship with the United States and, and, and having an opportunity to speak directly to people in the United States is, of course, very important. So let's start with, I mean, I mean, you can imagine, I mean, you were in the States for many, many years in Washington. The, I mean, it was just, oh, it was shocking in an exciting way and in, 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 and in a very hypocritical way when the news broke of this meeting on March 5. Can you tell us how that came about and maybe some background at what led up to sure. this uh, acceptance of this meeting? Sure. So uh, so like you said, on, on March 5th, the, I mean, the, uh, this news uh, broke out of, of a meeting that took place uh, between high-level uh, U.S. Uh, government officials and President Maduro uh, also other high-level officials from, from the Venezuelan government. It was the, perhaps the first meeting in a very long time of this high-level uh, representation. I believe that we can say this is, it, it's, you know, there's a lot of changes going on throughout the world. I think we're, we're definitely in, in a new era of many situations that, that are going on. I think it shows, uh, it, it, of, uh, you know, the, the failure of that maximum pressure uh, policy that was implemented during uh, the Trump administration in the sense that it didn't amount 
to what the U.S. Uh, had wanted uh, as an objective. And of course, it, it ended up hurting a lot of uh, Venezuelan people. Um, I think that now this new administration uh, that's been you know, a bit over a year in, in, in government hasn't really changed or hadn't really changed uh, you know, policies. Uh, non, uh, up to date, none of the uh, so-called sanctions, unilateral you know, coercive measures have been lifted or, or changed. Uh, but there was this one, uh, uh, this very important uh, first uh, meeting uh, between government officials. So I think it, it shows that at the end, um, you know, we've, we've always been right in saying that the best ways to, to communicate or to establish a policy uh, between Venezuela and the United States is through the channels of diplomacy, is to speaking rather than uh, through uh, aggressions. I think we, you know, if, if there's always, uh, there's always room for, for communication or for dialogue if it comes in a respectful way. Yeah. Maduro said, uh, stated, you know, a couple of days after the meeting when he came on to live television to, to speak to the Venezuelan people about, about these issues, you know, he said it was, a, it was a cordial meeting, it was a diplomatic meeting, it was, it was a, a, a respectful meeting and I think that's, that's very important uh, for us to point out. Uh, Venezuela has never been against diplomacy. Venezuela has never been against speaking. We've been, what we've been is reacting, of course, against uh, aggressions. I mean, you have to remember, uh, you know, in the last uh, three, four years, we've been, we have undergone attacks like, you know, a blackout that, that came out of, uh, you know, an attack, uh, hacking uh, our, our electrical system, uh, an attempted uh, invasion by mercenaries, uh, uh, U.S. trained, some of them uh, uh, coming from Colombia, coup attempt uh, led by Guaido and, and, and Leopoldo Lopez. Like all, all these things that we, all these forms of aggression. Uh, and of course, we're going to react and we're going to have, you know, a strong position against them. But what we always we've always continuously stated is that we're open to politics. We're open to diplomacy. We're open to speaking uh, on, on, on another type of terms. So this visit, I think, represents a victory for diplomacy in, in, in a sense. Um, that is not to say that things have uh, completely changed or that, you know, this is, this is the beginning of conversations that we'll see if, if they continue and, and if there's the political will to continue them, but 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 I think it is definitely an important uh, new moment where you know diplomacy is is at least in this moment triumphing over you know all the other types of aggressions. To me, this meeting was really interesting because in the days just before the meeting, you had President Biden extending the U.S. national emergency with regards to Venezuela, the one that calls Venezuela an unusual and extraordinary threat to the United States, which is patently absurd. You also had uh, the United States and Colombia engaging in military exercises, maritime exercises with a nuclear submarine right off of the Venezuelan coast. So, so, so what does it say that on the one hand, finally, after so many years, you have the United States willing to speak with Venezuela. I, I read in the media that it was the first visit by a White House official since the late 1990s, so over 20 years. And so, so at the, on the one hand, they're willing to meet, but on the other, they're still kind of keeping this pressure on Venezuela. And then right after the meeting, a few days later, you had the Colombian president, Ivan Duque, come to Washington, where 
you know, the news was announced that Colombia was named a non-NATO major ally of the United States, which carries with it all sorts of uh, implications for the defense industry and for the uh, Colombian economy. So, so, so what do you make of, of the United States kind of talking to Venezuela, but then at the same time, almost increasing the pressure in some ways? Well, I think, uh, I mean, I, I can't speak to what's on their minds and, and, and really what, you know, what, what the, the objective or, or, or the purpose of that is. I mean, we, we can say that this is a first advance or, you know, the uh, first achievement like in, in diplomatic terms. But like I said before, it, it's by no means the recomposition of relations or the, you know, uh, everything is, 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 uh, is over and, and, and there's a new relationship. What I think, though, it does is definitely call for uh, or show, you know, the need to, to, to reengage in that type of approach and approach for diplomacy rather than all these aggressions, but rather than, you know, the military threats next door. Uh, you know, I, I think because it, it, I feel the, the, the response even, uh, the way uh, President Maduro addressed nation and, and, and you know, and, and talked favorably about this type of communication between the two countries should show people and leaders in the United States that there's a lot that we can gain from diplomacy and, and, and much more than we lose when we resort, you know, to these other, or when they resort, let's just say, to these other types of, of, uh, uh, of aggressions and so forth. It, there's a long path, I, I believe, to, you know, uh, ahead, um, even if conversations continue, even if, you know, uh, uh, we can come to some uh, understandings. But I think, again, the diplomacy is the key where, you know, uh, uh, in, in which we should establish relationships. And I think that it was, it, it must have, it, it is very telling that the United States finally realized that they needed to come to this uh, approach. Uh, it was it was them that requested the, the visit and, and, and it was very welcomed in the sense that, you know, under these circumstances, the circumstances of, communication with respect, we are willing to sit down and talk and, and listen and, and dialogue. It, it's fascinating to me. I mean, and it's not been overtly discussed in the US media. Well, to some of us in the progressive and leftist news, yes. But the meeting was with the Maduro government, not the Guaido government as that has been recognized by the United States. I mean, that's basically a de facto recognition that Nicolas Maduro is the democratically elected president of Venezuela, which is huge in and of itself. It's huge in of course. And no, I, I uh, completely agree. I think I think, I think it's, it is it was quite a it's quite important because because what we said all along all, all this time, you know, there there is there really isn't another government. There is no parallel structure that you know it, it is only a, a fiction. Uh, to to call Guaido interim president or, or whatever, um, you know, it, it, and and it shows, you know, uh, as far as I'm, as far as I understand, they didn't even know, uh, you know, that this was what was taking place uh, until afterwards. So it it shows that, and you know, it's, it's telling well, a lot of these people that are willing to, uh, in a way, uh, you know. Uh, do damage or call for damage on their own country, thinking that 
you know, they will get somehow rewarded by the United States, they might as well, you know, history has shown this many times, they, they could probably end up, you know, bypassed or even ignored in, in, in moments when they're no longer uh, in, in a part of the interest of, of the U.S. So I think it, it, is, it is a positive, of course, a recognition. It's a recognition that happened not only by the U.S. government, and, you know, it's a recognition that even the U.S. media, mainstream media, that you know, they used to no longer call uh, President Maduro president, but you know, the regime or the de facto leader or whatever, then all of a sudden you start seeing all the lines again, you know, well, President Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. It's, 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 it's funny that you have to go through this in order to come back to reality in, in the United States. <laughs> Yeah, and going going off that, I, I mean, I think it's it's really interesting this changing media landscape that you alluded to because, you know, in the days before, weeks before this meeting, and then immediately after it, you had all these articles in mainstream uh, publications kind of changing their tone towards Venezuela. So, for example, before the meeting, the New York Times had this long piece lauding Venezuela's so-called new technocrats. Uh, you had the Washington Post in in really the most incredible opinion I've ever seen in the Washington Post, where they said it's titled Behind U.S. Foreign Policy Toward Venezuela Are Century-Old Racist Tropes, are basically arguing that U.S.-Venezuela policy has been based on white supremacy. You had an opinion in the Miami Herald, of all places, calling for sanctions relief. And even Bloomberg is saying, well, now Venezuela is embracing capitalism, which isn't true. But I think the, the point Bloomberg is trying to make is that it's okay to approach Venezuela. I think what's important here to recognize is that you know, uh, if you can if you can so easily change a couple of headlines and a couple of articles in, in order to show it's that it's not that reality changed in three days. Is that reality wasn't being told uh, the way it should be, and then you know uh, again, uh, like you said, you know we're in no way renouncing. Uh, you know we haven't renounced socialism. As a matter of fact. President Maduro has been since the beginning of this year uh, talking about the renewal of our socialism. We're, we're, we're talking about, we, we believe we're not at the socialism stage where we want to be. We're in a process of transition towards socialism. But this is a new moment, a new era of transition towards socialism. This is something that we've, we've been discussing, but we've never renounced uh, that idea. We are that we've always said that we are we are adapting socialist policies to our own reality, to our own context, to our own time. You know, it's, it's a different moment in, in time. Um, but but you know, we, we said that, and you know, we've been claiming for so many years that this is not a war zone. This is not a place that when you come here, you you know, you guys know this because you've been to Venezuela in recent years. But you know that if you read the newspapers, you think that this is a war zone. Or, and that you can't even come here because something's going to happen to you. Like all, all of a sudden we realized in, in three or four articles that these things were, you know, uh, Venezuela some, somehow is not as bad as it seemed or it's not as, as bad as they made it seem for all these years. There's a reality here. There's a reality where this is a country that has been hurt and it's true, it has been hurt by this US policy of sanctions we have seen a lot of difficulties we could have. And, and, you know, these sanctions were aimed at the beginning at attacking those things that we had, that, that the revolution had been able to, to improve and, 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 and to better, uh, uh, you know, after the, the years of neoliberal policies. 
we had strong healthcare, we had strong uh, uh, food and, and uh, distribution, we had strong education, and all these things started being affected directly by these sanctions. Even then, though, you know, this, the people, the Venezuelan people have resisted, and, you know, we've, we've made all these strides to, you know, to make sure that we survive, and the government has tried to make, you know, make uh, use of, of the little revenues that we we're able to get, and, and not let the, you know, social programs uh, die down. It's been a struggle for us, and it's been a struggle that in the last couple of months or even the last year we've seen a lot of success uh, in, in, in you know overcoming these difficulties you know for the first time in in this whole year we we've, we overcame hyperinflation you know this hyperinflation that we're talking about that this this whole year so far has has not had those high levels of, of inflation uh you know and, and even and despite all these uh, uh, sanctions put into place, we found ways to be creative and, 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 and to move around it. So what I think is interesting is that now, now the U.S. can really uh, or should really start seeing the Venezuela that is really here, the truth about Venezuela, the Venezuela that really exists and not this you know, mythical monster that they've built in, in the press. It's so... Um... <laughs> I guess as a US citizen to say it's so astounding and hypocritical and to see the US change. I mean, we are all happy that it's happened, that it was the US that approached the Venezuelan government. Um, but to have, I mean, I'll just be very coarse about it. The US has had a policy of basically starving, starving your nation, yeah. you know and denying medical access to medical supplies and technology, all of it. I mean, just on and on and on. And then just, oh, by the way, now we need your oil. It's just, um, it doesn't say much for uh, the integrity, to me as a US citizen, to me, the integrity with US diplomacy. And I think it sends a very big message to the rest of the world. It's like, well, and I, and to a certain degree, I understand this is politics and economics too. You know, everybody has certain interests at one point and then it shifts and, you know, the puzzle gets put back together in a different way. But it's very, um, it's huge that it was the U.S. that approached Caracas, that it was Washington that took the, took the initiative out of need. I would say, you know, out of political need, because a lot of people are going to be very upset paying a lot of money for gas this coming summer. <laughs> well, I, I think, I think, Terry, that the, the issue here is that we have to remember it, it was never Venezuela that changed its relationship. I mean, and, and you know, even uh, since the beginning of the Bolivarian Revolution, even with President Chavez uh, was here early on, Venezuela you know, develop its own uh, policies, its own independent foreign policy, develop its own social policies. You know, we, we, we went through, we started on this path for socialism and we never broke, you know, we never decided to break, you know, relations. We never decided to uh, um, uh, change uh, oil trade with uh, oil commerce with the United States. These have all been results of policies that the U.S. implemented towards Venezuela. When we finally decided regulations in 2019, it was because of, of you know something that that 
you know, it, it was even something that we, that we were left with no choice. You have a government that in our face is basically saying, we don't recognize who would recognize this other person, who, you know, proclaims self president. It, it was really, there was no other way but to, you know, to break relations. But Venezuela had never, you know, we've never had this intention. You know, we, we, we'd always been uh, reliable trade partners. And today, you know, it's funny that, you know, they, they, if you want to really, um, uh, you know, trade with Venezuelan oil again and buy Venezuelan oil, it is the United States that has all, to do all the work. It's the United States that has to lift the sanctions, the United States that have to allow its companies to operate in Venezuela. It's the United States that has to allow us to access the financial system so that we can, you know, go back and, and be able to, to work within that system. It's never, it was never us. That's what I mean. It was never us that placed, uh, you know, these difficulties or, or these, uh, you know, blocks in the relationship. So if if this ends up being uh, a construction where in, in, in some, you know, uh, in the near future, you know, some of these measures are lifted and, and we start, you know, uh, we, we go back to something that we had before. It's, it's what we always, you know, propose this is what we always did. You know, it was the United States that changed that, uh, that made those changes. And I and I do think, you know, in the in the current in the current context, uh, you know, the, all the issues that are going on in the world, uh, you know, we, we we're going to have a, an er energy crisis also because the planet is in, the, in, in in you know itself in a crisis mode. Uh, the the capitalism is in a crisis mode. You know, it's been there. Uh, many years, we, we we saw it, we've seen it more uh, in a crude way because of the pandemic. But you know, uh, in order to 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 stabilize, you know, uh, I I think you know it would be in the interest of 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 the people in the United States, the movements in the United States. You know, everybody should sort of think, you know, it, it would be better to go back to diplomacy. It would be better to go back to the other type of relations that we used to have in Venezuela, so that things can, you know kind of uh, stabilize, uh, you know, I think, I think you should, it, it could be uh, even a, something that, that worth uh, rallying around, you know? So right now in the United States and in Europe, we're seeing kind of corporate media really demonize, not just Russia, not just Vladimir Putin, but also the Russian people. What's the perspective on, on this conflict from Venezuela and from kind of the global south. How are how is Venezuela seeing what's going on in the Ukraine? What does Venezuela think about about Russia and the Russian people? Look, I I, I need I, I I believe that we have to start by saying something, uh, and and you know it's it's very important. We've always believed, uh, you know, we're talking about diplomacy. We've always believed in the diplomacy of peace, uh, you know, and, and we are of course against uh, conflicts. We're we're very, President Maduro has said it, has said it uh, as well. You know, we are con very concerned about, you know, things escalating and, and, and going into another uh, direction uh, you know, that could engage possibly the world into a, a major confrontation. And, and you know, uh, we definitely believe that, that we need as, a, as an international community, as a global community, we need to do things so that, you know, uh, conflicts uh, scale down so that, you know, we can return to diplomacy. Now, we can't have this conversation without 
uh, noticing or without realizing that these are issues that have been going on not since February, but that have been going on for many years. Uh, you know, there are issues uh, that threaten that that you know that, that that put in jeopardy Russia's security. Uh, you know, since many years ago, that put in jeopardy the lives of, of ethnic Russians within Ukraine, you know, since many years ago. Uh, you know, how many people have died in, in, in the conflicts uh, prior to uh, to this recent uh, operation in February? Uh, and, and those things are not in the news or, you know, they, they don't make the, the news cycle. Uh, and, any, and in any case, you know, if, if, you have a NATO that is uh, providing uh, more weapons, uh, that is calling for, you know, uh, building up, uh, you know, uh, a larger conflict, then of course, you know, we, we're all going to feel threatened and, and this is something, this is completely the wrong direction. Well, you should have, we believe countries in NATO and elsewhere should, should you know, be, uh, Promoting peace, understanding, meetings, you know, sit down, let's, let's sit down, let's talk, you know, that's that's the way you de-escalate, not by sending more uh, 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 weapons and planes or whatever, you know, offering things that, that would continue or, or exacerbate uh, a military conflict. Um, and, and there's another thing, uh, you know, we don't think the solutions, I mean, we've experienced throughout all these years, uh, these unilateral coercive measures. Now, when you say you see that every day new sanctions against Russia are announced and new things, well, where is that going to lead? Because we haven't, we know that sanctions definitely do not lead to prosperity, to uh, you know, uh, to any of the goals that are, that are set, except for uh, the the that that goal that that you cannot admit in public, which is that you want to hurt the people of that country you sanction. So at the end of the day, what, you know, if that's going to be the solution offered by the U.S., are we going to put sanctions and a stronger sanctions than ever on Russia? Is that going, who's that going to hurt? No, nowhere in the world has have sanctions hurt anybody but the common people of any of those countries in question. So having lived through that, Having lived through, um, you know, all these uh, attacks, uh, the xenophobia that that has uh, spread in even in this region against Venezuelans, when when some Venezuelans have been forced because of the sanctions to migrate to other countries, so we know, you know, that when that discrimination, that 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 attack, having lived through censorship as you know as Venezuelans, uh, uh, you know, we there's. There's no media information that comes from Venezuela that you can listen to. Uh, Telesur is not something that you could easily uh, access uh, in, in, you know, in the north and so forth. Well, having lived through this, we we see what's going on in Russia, uh, you know, towards Russia, and we you know we understand uh, that this is you know this is something uh, negative uh, uh, and and that you know we definitely don't agree with. We definitely don't. Don't support. We have expressed our support uh, to the Russian people, to the Russian government, in 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 a sense that we know these actions that are being taken place against them are are very dangerous. I mean, just the fact that this is, as ridiculous as things are getting, uh, 
uh, that you know you want to you want to erase uh, Yuri Gagarin from you know uh, space uh, history. So as if this man never reached space. I mean, how 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 ludicrous is this? I mean, how far are we willing to go to accept uh, and, and to normalize this? You know, it, it, we've lived it. I mean, we've seen things against Venezuela. How our own our own history has been turned upside down by this narrative. Now we see it going on the rest. Well, when is this going to stop? You know, uh, so I think uh, we sympathize with that, uh, with what's, we understand what's going on in Russia because we live something similar. Thank you so much to Terry Matson and to Carlos Ron, our guests for today. To our listeners, you can follow Carlos on Twitter at Carlos J. Ron V.E. Ron is spelled R-O-N. You are listening to Code Pink Radio, coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C., WBAI in New York City, and KPFT in Houston. We'll be back after this break with a conversation between Code Pink's Terry Matson and Victor de Corcurrea Lugo, a Colombian analyst who will discuss the recent elections in that country. Silva lenta muerte y él sigue de pie, dueño de su suerte, tiempo navegante, cazador de lunes y soles errantes, errantes. Juez incompetente y aún está de pie, dolor infinito y aún sigue de pie. No son los tendones los que le levantan, cuelga de sus sueños, vende de las luces de la patria, cual caña veral al viento. Pueblo y corazón le mueven, niños que cumplidos siete ya andarán la tabla del nueve. Piedras del camino en cualquier dirección Quiebran huesos, rompen Fracturando el paso a la belleza Alguien fue delante y desarmó el horror Que con máscaras Encargaban por nuestras cabezas Se responde pues a la razón La demoran pero nunca Nunca jamás la detienen Se apagan las luces Saben que también habrá Una sombra que nos sostiene Nueva sombra que nos sostiene That was Buena Fe singing La Sombra Que Me Sostiene, The Shadow That Sustains Me. The Cuban group recently released their version of this song in support of Venezuelan diplomat Alex Saab, who was illegally extradited and arrested by the U.S. in violation of the Vienna Convention. To learn more about Alex Saab, visit www.codepink.org slash freealexsaab. Welcome back. I'm Leonardo Flores at Code Pink. You are listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., and KPFT in Houston. I'll now hand it over to my friend Terry Matson, who will speak with Victor de Correa Lugo, a Colombian analyst, about the country's recent elections. On Sunday, March 13th, Colombians voted for a new Congress and also cast ballots in presidential primaries to choose party candidates for the May presidential contest. As opinion polls had indicated, leftist Senator Gustavo Petro emerged as the current leader in the race for the presidency. 
With nearly all votes counted, he won the primary for the historical pact, a coalition of left-wing parties with 80% of the more than 4.5 points, excuse me, 5.4 million votes cast in its primary. Team Columbia, a coalition of conservative groups, drew 3.9 million voters to its primary, which was won by Federico Gutierrez, a former mayor of Medellin, and was criticized some aspects of the 2016 peace deal with revolutionary armed forces of Colombia. A group of centrist parties known as the Hope Coalition got 2 million votes in its primary, which was won by mathematician Sergio Fajardo, who also ran in the 2018 presidential election. Joining us today from Colombia is physician, university pres uh, professor, writer, humanitarian worker, journalist, and I will say friend, uh, Victor Curia Lugo. Welcome, Victor. So happy to have you back with us. Some of our audience may recognize you from reporting on the National Paro with us last year. Thank you so much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be again talking to you after the national strike, of course. And uh, the idea today is to share with you some of my impression, preliminary impressions about this uh, election that happened the last Sunday. Let's start saying like the, the most important is what the meaning of this election right now in Colombia. As you may know, Colombia had a peace process a few years ago. The current government uh, promised to destroy this peace process and they have success in this task. Uh, unfortunately, the killing of a former member of the guerrilla group who decided to, to sign the, 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 the agreement, the lack of implementation, uh, the level of violence in Colombia has increased severely. For instance, the number of uh, IDPs, the internal displaced persons, the killing of uh, leaders of the civil society, uh, and in general, the uh, poverty and the gap between the rich and the poor people is a big issue. In this context, uh, there has been the country during decades, but especially the last years. That's why we started a um, big uh, confrontation in the strike in the streets uh, was the national strike, who was impressive. Uh, if you compare with our own history in Colombia, it's not easy to remember uh, one day like that. You know, it was like months of mobilizations confronting the police forces. Uh, but the most important was how the society joined the protest how the society was, just let me tell you, maybe you remember, no? Like, um, you know, sharing breads, uh, the coffee, uh, sharing, you know, all the, 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 the small issues that they have, you know, like putting together on the table to work together a better scenario, political scenario. Part of this political experience uh, has been reflected in the elections. We arrived to the election with a clear, uh, uh, positions. For one side, we have a, a Fico Gutierrez, Federico uh, Gutierrez, who is uh, the right-wing uh, leader, and uh, uh, is a spectrum of, of people who want to continue the same administration that the, the current president, uh, uh, Ivan Duque. They have a clear agenda about neoliberalism, about the militarization, 
against the peace process and with a, no a single uh, feeling to talk about the communities. The dialogue between the state and the society is, uh, is practically useless uh, with this current government. In the, in the middle, in the, the, the so-called center that we have now to use the word center, by the way, is uh, some people who politically have the same uh, structure. They represent the elites. They represent the new liberalism policy. They love privatization, but they use jeans and they have a uh, long hair and they, you know, they are uh, like, like uh, I, let's say like, um, hippies, uh, new age, uh, 21st century. And mm -hmm. this kind of speech didn't work as they expected. It was the second, uh, let's say, the, the second block in the, in the election. And the third one was uh, the uh, um, historical pack. In Spanish will be Pact Historico. I will mention in Spanish. Uh, the Pacto Historico uh, won, uh, was really amazing. And this is the first conclusion. Uh, the people want to change the political uh, situation in Colombia. Most of the people vote in favor. And the Pacto Historico was the, is the leading organization in the Senate, as well as the, the Camera, means the, the Congress, the, the parliamentary power, the legislative power, yeah, the, the most important uh, uh, political force in that moment is the Pacto Historico. Mm -hmm. Second one, we have also internal uh, uh, polls uh, within the different political parties, and one of them was the Pacto Historico, to decide who will be the candidate for the presidential election. And in this, uh, took part in the, in the Pacto Historico, five persons. Uh, the first one is Gustavo Petro, who won with uh, more than five millions. Let, let me later. I will explain why I don't say a concrete number. And the the big uh, success was uh, uh, was done by Francia Marquez. Maybe you don't know who is Francia Marquez, but the Colombian knows. I, know. met her, I had met her several times. You know, in meetings about human rights, in meetings about ethical issues. And in the national strike one year ago, by the way, I met her in, the, in Cali, the demonstrations. She didn't want to be a, a protagonist. She didn't want to be, you know, like the, in the, the, to, to take advantage of the, of, the, of the strike. She really respected the commitment of the young people and, and she was behind, but so respectful. And I remember that in that occasion, I say to Francia that she has three, four, four mistakes for weakness, let's say. I say your weakness are your, uh, your, uh, your bad side are your good side, let's say in this way. I hope you understand my ironical way to, <laughs> to mention, no? no don't, don't judge me, please. I say, first of all, you are a woman. Yeah. And this is a clear uh, uh, weakness in this country. Second one, you are a black woman. Third one, you are a poor black woman. And uh, fourth, you were born in a poor neighborhood. She's poor, um, sorry, and she was a, uh, grow up in the, not in the downtown, not in Bogota, not in the political center, but in the regions. Means she's from the region, poor, black, and woman. 
and she got which is why we love than, <laughs> right? and she got more than 800,000 votes it was amazing really amazing and you know that the, the the media trying to create a confrontation between Petro who won the he won the 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 consultancy the internal consultant and and uh, and Francia were asking Francia what to do and if she will be the vice president uh, or something like that and and Francia said no I don't care I can be a minister or vice president or nothing it depends on what the people wants and my duty is not to get a a, a job my duty is to bring happiness to my people. It was really wonderful. Now, uh, it, was, it was really nice. Now, the, the first conclusion is the, the uh, break, the, you know, is the, the, the jump from the past and to vote for the Pact Historico. The second one, the huge uh, support during the election to the name of Francia Martin and what she represents. The third one is the, this kind of people that I mentioned before, the new age, UPs, hippies, uh, they really failed in the idea to present the new, the same government, but with the new packet. They really they couldn't, exactly, with new face. Yeah, that's correct, new that's face. correct. And the other thing is like uh, the sole, uh, some uh, candidates from the past, they try to repeat the experience and they fail dramatically, what is really good. Uh, but the most important point that I would like to share with the, with the audience and, and of course with you, Terry, is what happened in, days, in the last two days. Uh, we have like a, a registered list of a, a special uh, documents to register the 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 ballot, the ballot, and the problem is that this register has been uh, modified in the legal way, and uh, this the report given by Gustavo Petro and by another member of the Senate is really a huge issue. They calculate that around. 26% of the ballot box has not reported a single vote in favor of the Pacto Historico. Oh. This is amazing. For instance, there was some reports of the, we have a special application form in paper called E14, and they have modify in order to be to delete the votes this is not a small issue it's a national scandal you can follow the discussion in the in the social nets but the most important is first of all that has been a systematical issue it's not an isolated case it's not that someone make a mistake wanted to write 11 and put 10 or 12 no it's not matter of one vote the preliminary uh, analysis is that we could talk right now about, I don't know, more than 2 million votes. Wow. Million out, votes. Of total, it's, out of a total... Yeah, it's, it, it's like, yeah, imagine that, the, 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 for instance, the right-wing candidate 
who won like the internal poll with uh, around three million votes. It's really amazing. We are talking about six seats in the Senate that are under discussion. And we see how the European Union and the other international observers published a report saying like the situation here is normal, that there was a transparency election, what we don't say any transparent election around at all. This means, first of all, that the, the, the left, that is so-called left, because, you know, when we talk about Petro, as we mentioned before, 30, people believe that if you talk about social justice or social security or welfare state or to respect the constitution, is to be leftist. Exactly. Uh, Vladimir Putin, even some candidates say uh, Petro from, P from Petro, like P from yeah. Putin. They use this kind of, you know, analogies and we will become Venezuela. Uh -huh. you know, Petro is a social liberal guy. You can follow the, the doctrine of John Rawls. This is Petro. Petro is not a socialist. Petro is not a communist. Petro is not a this radical leftist that wanted to be presented by the narrative of the right wing. And despite this, we, the people, uh, well, one thing is the, 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 the success of Petro and Francia Marx, first point to be, to take into account. The second uh, point is the level of fraud. We are talking about more than two millions of votes. The third one is how this fraud was elaborated in a systematically way. Mm -hmm. And uh, the silence of the international community. It, yeah. it happened the same in Bolivia, for instance, or happened the same in, I don't know, in another country. Right now, the, the headlines of the newspaper will be like fraud in X country. But with, uh, as the country is Colombia, one of the most important allies of Biden, well, is not relevant at all. The other point that is really important is that we will have a presidential election in two months. Right. If they have the capacity to implement this level of fraud, they will do the same in the, mm -hmm. in the presidential election for sure. And it put on the table, on the debate, how strong, how serious, how respectful, respectful for the willing of the people is the democracy in Colombia. This is the big point. It's not only a matter of 2 million votes or 100 votes, or, or this is not the, 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 the issue. The issue before all is how serious is our democracy? Yeah. How serious is our electoral system? How serious uh, is the government to respect the freedom of speech, because finally election is some way to speech, to deliver in the public um, arena. How uh, respectful is the, uh, the, the Colombian state to take really into account the willing of the people? That's the problem. Now we are suffering uh, armed conflict and it's difficult. I, I, I am in favor of peace. I have been really involved, try to push, you know, the different groups, armed groups in Colombia to give up the weapons and to enter in a dialogue and the negotiation process. But it's really difficult to some extent to say to these groups right now, well, 
use the electoral space, come to the political space. When you see like uh, the political space is, is, is a joke. And what is going on is uh, the, uh, the capacity of the elites to continue in the power. But let me give you an example. Uh, beside what we can think about Chavez, finally, the traditional uh, Venezuelan parties, Copay and ADECO, they were ready to give up the power and to give the power to, to Chavez. Even the elites, the white elites in uh, Sucre, Bolivia, they finally accepted the electoral triumph of uh, Evo Morales. The, the elites in Brazil, you know how right-wing they are, uh, they accepted the election of Lula. Even in, the, in, in Chile, they respect the election and they recognize uh, Boric as a president. The question is, if you see the history of Colombia in the last 200 years, no one single democratic president has been elected. And something even horrible that I would like to share with, with, the, with the people. In 2000, in, sorry, 1987, we were in the university. Our candidate was uh, the, our professor of law um, Pardo Leal, he was the candidate and he got only 300,000 votes. It's nothing. He was killed. He was killed by the government. Even by that the... small percentage, that small. But it yeah. was the ideas. They killed, tried to kill the idea. Yeah, exactly. We used to say, I want to, to say bye with this. Well, we used to say that democracy is not only an election. The democracy means justice. Democracy means the right of minorities beyond election. Uh, democracy means many things. But in Colombia, democracy not even means to respect the elections. This is a big uh, lack of democracy, lack of rural law in Colombia. Thank you so much, Victor and Terry. You can follow Vic Victor de Correa Lugo by, on Twitter at De Correa Lugo. That's T E C U R R E A L U G O, De Correa Lugo. And you can also follow Terry Matson at Hey underscore Tear, H E Y underscore Tear on Twitter. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., and KPFT in Houston. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil. We know there's a link. They say Code War. We say Code Pink.